The Bears tamed the Lions this last Thursday. Having defensive coaching has become downright offensive, and we take our customary look back on Week 12's gridiron action before predicting Week 13. It's all coming at you on this episode of Bear With Me. So we'll start off today's episode looking at a general trend in the NFL as it stands, and that's offensive head coaches. So starting with the Rams, what, last year we had this fad pop up. Who's going to get the sexy young offensive head coach, right? The Rams was everybody's model team. They went from being this team of total zeros. Goff looked like a bust. Everybody on the team was bad. As long as Fisher was the head coach, McVay takes over and suddenly they're the NFL's darling team. Super good. Everybody loves them. Touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. Todd Gurley's playing great. Aaron Donald's a stud. Jared Goff's a star. I mean, everything's fixed, right? And it's all because of the magic of that young offensive head coach. And in the same mold, uh, you had the Bears hire Matt Nagy, and they go from being awful with a coach shockingly similar to Fisher in John Fox. And now Matt Nagy has the Bears at 8-3. and three. Their offense went from being just some of the worst offense in the NFL, I believe it was 29th in 2017, to being downright respectable. I mean, it's certainly in the upper half of the NFL, and I believe numerically we're in the top 10, though I don't, I don't know if we've earned it. Kudos to Nagy if that's the case, though. Numbers aren't usually numbers for no reason 12 weeks into the season. But so anyways, with all this having been said, we've named two names, Sean McVay and Matt Nagy, both coaches of high-profile teams that are doing very, very well right now. And so I decided to take a look at the NFL and Total and how are offensive coaches versus defensive coaches doing. And I got to tell you, the results surprised me, though not as much as you might think. So let's start with the basics, right? Of the eight division leaders in the NFL at the moment, those division leaders being the Patriots, the Chiefs, the Steelers, the Texans, the Cowboys, the Rams, the Bears, and the Saints, six of those eight teams feature offensive coaches, those teams being the Saints, the Bears, the Rams, the Cowboys, Garrett Counts, unfortunately, the Texans, and the Chiefs. That leaves the Steelers with Mike Tomlin and Belichick with the Patriots as our two defensive representatives, though. Belichick is obviously one of the best coaches ever. We're not going to rule him out, but that's a special case. So six of the eight division leaders feature offensive coaching. So then let's throw in the Chargers because they're eight and three, and that's hard to ignore. And then the best team after that is going to be the Vikings. Uh, we'll throw them in just to get us a round number of 10. And we've got seven offensive coaches and three defensive coaches. Now, obviously, taking just the top 10 teams and asking about whether their coach comes from an offensive background or a defensive background doesn't establish like a hard and fast rule, but it is a bit interesting to note that instead of a 50-50 split between defensive and offensive coaching, right now you're seeing a clear dominance of offensive head coaching versus defensive head coaching breeding talent. Uh, now, to be a bit subjective for a second, the really crazy part to me is that aside from the Patriots, who we'll, we'll put aside, every truly dominant team in the NFL right now is coached by an offensive head coach. The dominant teams, to me anyways, are the Rams, they're killing people, the Saints, they're murdering people, 
the Chargers are destroying folks and the Chiefs. I'm not going to put the Bears in that category. I'm definitely not going to put the Steelers in that category. And if we're already going to discount the Steelers and the Bears, I'm definitely not going to include the Cowboys, who, in my opinion, are a rung below all of the teams that have already been mentioned. So that means that out of the dominators, four out of five are offensive head coaches. And that's that's even with the quote-unquote defensive head coach Bill Belichick possessing a clear, surefire Hall of Fame NFL quarterback. Ultimately, the entire reason I bring any of this stuff up is just because we've got so many teams that are all going to be looking to hire head coaches. We get them every single year. Somebody fires their head coach, probably going to be the Jets, just at least one, and then they're going to hire a new head coach, and we always speculate, like, what is the answer? Is there a secret sauce? What's the formula to building a winning team? And at least what I'm seeing right now is that the clear answer is offensive coaching. Now, that's not to say that every offensive head coach is successful. In fact, if we take a look at any coach hired within the last three years, so 2016, 2017, and 2018, and I'm only counting coaches to start the season. So Greg Williams, just hired with the Browns, he doesn't count. Uh, We've got 16 head coaches that were hired, 11 offensive guys, and five defensive guys. But here's the thing. Of those offensive guys that were hired, 11, Five of them currently have records over 500, and of the five defensive guys hired, none of them do. So, at least what I'm seeing, if I draw this, is not only are you going to have some degree of potential success when you hire an offensive coach, but you have a 50% chance of finding somebody quote-unquote good, if you count over 500 as good. Whereas, when you have a defensive head coach, you're hamstringing your franchise. Obviously, this is not the biggest sample size, and I could go back and do more research, but over the last three years, the league has changed a lot, so I don't want to go too much further back in the past. The fact that there are no defensive coaches that were hired recently that are over 500 is a little bit shocking to me, and I didn't expect to find that when I went searching. Anyways... Of the offensive coaches that have been hired, I think the key is to find a quote-unquote stud to go with your players. Uh, I think, obviously, McVay is just a knockout-of-the-park hire. I think Nagy's phenomenal for the Bears, and that that can't be understated. He has been amazing. And then there's plenty of other folks. I mean, everybody from the obvious Doug Peterson, who has already won a Super Bowl, uh, to Adam Gase, who's been fine. Everything looked a lot better two years ago to Dirk Cutter, who hasn't been all that awesome. I mean, you got offensive guys that are going to flounder and you got offensive guys who are going to find success. Some will find success early and then they'll fail. Who knows? We'll see it. But I can tell you that none of these defensive folk have found any success. It's almost it's almost spooky, but it's true. So At least what we're seeing now is that not only does offensive coaching give you a chance to be good, it gives you a chance to be great. And defensive coaching in the current NFL, when that sits up at the top at your head coaching position, gives you statistically no shot to be better than 500. Obviously, that's a lot of extrapolation. But then when you look at the teams up at the top, again, I'll remind you, it's Belichick and a bunch of offensive guys. And Belichick's been doing this for years and years and years. He's not debatably the greatest coach in the NFL on accident. So I'm going to go ahead and say we can we can exclude him. Too many teams have tried to be Belichick and they've failed. So let's go ahead and face it. If you don't think you have the next Bill Belichick 
on your hands. Tom Brady in tow and on your team, you find yourself an offensive head coach. Old, young, doesn't matter. Doug Peterson, he's not young. Matt Nagy, Sean McVay, they are. Find yourself an offensive head coach to lead your team. But if you're a Bears fan, you didn't turn on this podcast so that you could listen to somebody ramble on about coaching and what it looks like in the NFL. You came here to talk about the Chicago Bears. So let's talk about them. The Chicago Bears visited the Detroit Lions on one of the most criminally short rests that you can possibly get in the NFL, and bada boom, we beat them 23-16. to So that brings Chicago up to 8-3. and Detroit falls down to 4-7. and Their season's likely over, as led by Chase Daniel with a nice little stat line of going 27 for 37, 230 yards, two TDs. And the ultimate takeaway from this game, in my opinion, is that the Bears are really freaking good. That's what I got. I didn't get, wow, Chase Daniel, you're some amazing player. I didn't get, holy moly, the Lions are so bad. It just looked like a Lions team that has a decent amount of talent on it. I mean, LeGarrette Blunt didn't have a bad game that just got overpowered by a way, way, way better team. Given that Chicago's coming out of this monster rebuild that's taken what felt like five years, even though I know it was only three or four, it's great to see that their talent and raw talent alone can go win a football game. And that's not even to discount the coaching of play caller Matt Nagy, who I thought called a wonderful game given that he didn't even have his starting quarterback to play the game with. Truly, everything that could go well did go well for the Bears. I had said coming into this game that this would be a particularly tough one for the Bears emotionally because they just came off the emotional high of beating the Vikings and now had to go play a team that they'd already beaten. So I want to just commend them for handling the situation with grit and professionalism just like they should. They admirably survived the short rest given to them, a nasty turnover by Trey Burton, and switching quarterbacks over a three-day period to pull out a really, really big win. I want to give an extra special shout out and kudos to Chase Daniel, who filled in for Mitch Trubisky admirably, even though he did show us, and I mean this in the best of ways, Chase, why Mitch has been playing so well. He showed us what we lose when Mitch is out of the game, and that was a whole lot of speed out of the quarterback's legs, the ability for the quarterback to run, as well as a little bit of zip on those passes. I looked like, to me, Chase and Mitch both completed about the same kinds of deep balls down the field. Each of them missed, and each of them make them. So you're not losing much in terms of deep velocity. It seems like it seems like Mitch is a little more aggressive downfield, which I think fits what Nagy wants to do with him and frankly helps us score more points. But that's what you expect out of your starting quarterback. You expect the backup to come in and have a bit of a dip in offensive production, but the production was still there. I also want to give some kudos to Tariq Cohen, who played a great game. Those wheel routes that he was running were open and open and open and open just all game long. He played great, and I loved watching him. He's continuing to blossom in this offense. He's continuing to be the receiving threat that we expected him to be, and as long as he can clean up the late-game fumbles that we've seen him run into now twice— He'll be a threat for years and years and years to come. I also want to give a nice offensive kudo to Anthony Miller, 
who I'll tell you what, whenever I watch Miller play, I see a young Antonio Brown. I see somebody with the same swagger that AB has. I see somebody with the hands who just catches absolutely everything. Somebody running crisp and precise routes and who's ultimately, as soon as he gets on that same page with Mitch to where they get that Jordy Nelson, Aaron Rodgers connection, the Big Ben, Antonio Brown connection, obviously the Edelman-Brady connection. When Miller and Trubisky get on that same page, I think Miller's just going to blow the scoreboard open. Like, it's not even going to be a contest. He is such a good receiver. He is such a linchpin of this Bears offense. He's playing great football. I hope he keeps it up. I hope he keeps growing because he looks so good. And if he gets any better, he is going to break the league. Moving on to the defensive side, they swallowed the Lions. If anybody wants an example of what a modern-day 2018 NFL elite defense looks like, look no further than the Chicago Bears. They're here. It's over. Three games in 12 days, and they still managed to come up with a game-winning interception by both Kyle Fuller and Eddie Jackson. Both, in their own way, were game-winning interceptions. Action Jackson obviously takes one straight to the house to give the Bears what would ultimately be the final lead of the game, and then Kyle Fuller seals the game away with a pick of his own. This pass rush is playing great. They're getting enough pressure that they're forcing teams to go into this short pass mode that allows a good secondary to feast and pick off so many passes. They're at 20. They're three above number two in the NFL. They're killing people. So here's my defensive theory. It looks as if Vic Fangio has the same game plan for pretty much every single football game so far. He starts out in the first half by quote-unquote just letting the boys play. So that's the defensive line and the outside linebackers are just going to go to town. They're going to try to cause some havoc for the opposing offense and deny both the running game and long-developing passing plays. That's all they got to do. The point is to force the other offense to start playing that short passing game. This is the same thing that Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady beat us on. So this gamble doesn't always work that I'm about to talk about, but Russell Wilson and the Seahawks just Detroit, uh, Minnesota fell victim to this exact same concept. In the third quarter, they start doing these quick-release passes, and that's about all they do. They try to run it occasionally to, quote-unquote, keep the Bears honest, but it's basically a waste of a down, as these offenses realize the only way they're going to start to get yardage is by quick outs, short over the middles, and screens. So how does this play into the Bears' defensive plan, you might ask? Well, by the fourth quarter, they get a good picture, they being the Bears' secondary, of what that short passing attack actually looks like. They start waiting for it, and just like you saw against Detroit, seriously, go back, you can see the same thing against Seattle, and I'll go find more examples if you want them. You start to see the Bears' defense knows where the quarterback is going, and that's the trouble about the short passing game. What people don't talk about is that the short passing game will get you a bunch of yards over time with quick completions that ideally go for between 8 and 12 yards with minimal risk. The issue is that when a defense starts keying on you, if they pick off a pass, there is nobody home to stop them from scoring a touchdown. So in a sense, that short passing game actually has the biggest risk possible in terms of total points that you could eat on a given play. With this in mind, especially once the Bears strike with a big interception to swing the momentum a little bit, the Bears can put the opposing offense in that fourth quarter in a position they don't want to be in, where the offense has to not only worry about getting points where they're losing the game, 
but they also have to worry about making sure they don't give the Bears more points. And I don't think offenses operate well when they're out of rhythm. I don't think offenses operate well when they have to worry about making sure that they aren't the reason points get scored. Uh, And so I think this ultimately shakes a lot of people's confidence. It happened to Stafford, and he threw that second interception that was just miserable for everybody involved. Whether or not the tight end quit on the route or Stafford should have thrown it, none of that's really the point. The point is the Bears put him in a position he didn't want to be in. He was kind of had to throw something up there, and Kyle Fuller came down with it. And I really believe this stuff reverberates around the league. Other teams are trying to figure out how do we stop the Bears. And the more they see, hey, if we try short passing, we might get 150 yards. The more likely they are to go for it. And the more likely they are to go for it, the more likely the Bears are to pick off another pass and take it to the house. They're doing it at a ridiculous rate so far this year. So until they have more trouble actually getting into the end zone, I'm just going to assume they're going to keep doing it. So with all that having been said, I think it's fair to say that it was an offensive and defensive swallowing of the Lions. The special teams sort of just canceled each other out. Cody Parkey didn't really do anything. Pat O'Donnell didn't really do anything. Uh, Matt Prater didn't really do anything. Nothing really swung the game. You just ended up with the feeling that Chicago's offense was a little bit better than Detroit's defense. And Chicago's defense was a little bit better than Detroit's offense. That's how you end up with a 23-16 game, folks. One team is just that much better than the other. One play I'll highlight before we move on to next week's game against the Giants, though, is that Anthony Miller throwback pass to Chase Daniel. Gosh, I love that play. You see it in college occasionally. The fact that Nagy had the guts to not only call it, but call it with Chase Daniel in the game, I think that sends a message to the entirety of the NFL at large that Nagy is going to mess with your mind. I mean, Mitch Trubisky is debatably the best runner in the NFL this year. Uh, He's certainly certainly up there with Cam Newton. Uh, You know what? I'm going to take that back. Cam Newton's the best runner, and Mitch Trubisky is the clear-cut second-best runner in the NFL. You give him the ball on a throwback pass when you aren't paying attention, and he could realistically take it to the house from about 30 yards out. So seeing that kind of creativity, seeing what Nagy can come up with, is just a joy that makes absolutely every single Bears game worth watching. So much fun. Anyways, that was the Lions, it happened, it's over, and the Bears should most certainly be ready and rested for their matchup with the New York football Giants. I'll start off this preview with a hot take. The Giants aren't very good at football. You get, They got some players. They got some really good players. We got Landon Collins, we got Odell Beckham Jr., Saquon Barkley's a boss, but I don't think that football team in terms of top to bottom, 53 guys on the roster, is very good. I think they look like a 3-8 and eight team when I watch them. They always have that one mistake right around the corner that's going to screw up their game plan. I don't think any of that changes just because we're in the Meadowlands. Also, for those of you Bear fans who don't know and love Pass Rush, the New York Giants are currently tied for first in the NFL with 38 sacks allowed. Go Giants! That sounds good. Great going up against the Bears, who now have a healthy Khalil Mack and a great general pass rush coming at him. While I understand that Saquon Barkley is a total game breaker and will likely score seven points by himself, 
I ultimately don't see any way that this Giants offensive line is going to be able to put together an even reasonable game that will allow an only okay quarterback, maybe the worst current quarterback in the NFL, to have a legitimate shot at beating the Bears. Now, this is, of course, assuming that the Bears play anywhere from 70% to 100% of their best. They could always go to the Meadowlands and come out straight up flat and lose against even the Jets. I mean, anybody can be bad on any given week. But I think coming off this win against the Lions and with a first round buy in sight, Nagy's going to be able to get these guys motivated enough to go out and throttle a Giants team. If you're asking me the score, I think the Bears win it by 14 or more if Trubisky plays and a sound 7-10 to 10 victory if Daniel plays that's a little bit reminiscent of the Lions, but I mean, it's even worse. Odell Beckham is going to be able to make plays. Don't get me wrong. Saquon Barkley is going to be able to make plays. But I just don't think the Giants have a good enough overall offensive package to do any more damage than that. And so most of this game scoring that I'm trusting is going to come from the Bears offense, who I think should be able to move at least 16 to 21 points onto the board for the Bears. I think that's plenty. I also think that another thing that plagues this Giants offense is that the Bears' defense is hungry for turnovers. They've proved that over the last couple of weeks, and so I think that the Giants are going to have a really hard time getting out of this game without giving away two turnovers. Uh, I wanted to say picks because I think they're going to look like picks, but ultimately two turnovers is where I see the Giants' offense sitting maybe more, uh, but two is what I would go in expecting. I think those two will be costly because the only way you're going to be able to beat the Bears is to play really perfect on offense, at least from a turnover perspective. You don't even have to do anything sometimes. Just don't turn it over. Don't give your defense a harder time because of the Bears' defense. I don't think the Giants are a good enough team to do that. Uh, there are a lot of teams in the NFL who I think are. They aren't. I think the Giants lose this. I think the Bears win it certainly comfortably. And that similar to our games against the Jets and our games against the Bills, that this is one that you can rest easy, Bears fans. We're going to be fine. Uh, I see a lot of fans online that are kind of waiting for the shoe to drop. They're saying, oh, I don't know. The Giants have some legitimate playmakers. But being from Dallas, I've kept up with the NFC East. And let me tell you, they're, they're just not good. After they'd beaten the 49ers, I thought to myself, hey, hey, wouldn't it be pretty funny if the uh, if the Giants came back and made some noise in their division? And then they beat the Buccaneers, and I was like, holy moly, they might actually come back and make some noise in the division. But but no, no, they, they lost to the Eagles. The Eagles aren't all that great, kind of like I've said already. And now their fans have already started looking at mock drafts, and that's just never a good place to be. So yeah, the magic number, if we were going to pick one, is 23. Uh, the Giants have scored less than 23 points in 7 out of their 11 games. I think it's fair to say that the Bears' defense, being one of the best in the NFL, should be able to limit them to a slightly under their season average. Their season average is less than 23 points. If the Bears can amass more than 23 points, I think they'll win. I think they can, and so they should take this one home. So that wraps up our Bears segments. Uh, Lions game obviously went well. Giants game should go well. And let's move on to the NFL at large. And I got to be honest, folks, I didn't expect the show's first week of predictions to be quite so on the money. I mean, the NFL's Week 12 action must have been fairly predictable, all things told, because we ended up getting 13 of the games right and 10 of 15 of the scores right, which is pretty great. Hopefully we'll enjoy the same kind of success for Week 13. But first, let's go ahead and get into our red-hot reactions of Week 12. 
Having already gone over the Bears versus the Lions game in detail, we'll go ahead and move on to the Redskins, who visited the Dallas Cowboys and lost 23-31. This game played out pretty much exactly like we expected it to, where Colt McCoy came out and threw for two touchdowns and three interceptions against a Cowboys defense that was ready to beat him. I don't know what this game would have looked like with Alex Smith in the picture, but since he's out of the picture, all we can do is review the game. The big story that I saw was that Amari Cooper absolutely exploded. We'll see whether he was worth the first round pick and the money that Dallas is going to have to commit to him. But at this moment, at this moment in time, Amari Cooper looked really, really good against the Redskins. If he can be a part of helping Dak Prescott transcend to another level of quarterbacking, he'll be well, well worth it. But he's got to get there. We'll see what these Cowboys can do. They're leading the division. They've got a pretty good hold over it, I'd say. But they're going to have to show a little bit more if they're going to actually make any noise in this playoff picture uh, the Thursday night test against the Saints is going to be a big one look we'll get there when we get there but the Cowboys have quite the challenging road ahead of them suffice to say Redskins I'm sorry but it looks like it's over uh, just like we thought it was Colt may put up some nice games may really have some feel-good wins I mean we'll see but if he can't beat the Cowboys I can guarantee he's not going to be able to beat anybody better than the Cowboys I think it's over oh well Sometimes you catch a bad <coughs> break. Closing out Thanksgiving's games, we had the Falcons visiting the Saints, and the Falcons just couldn't get out of their own way in this one. And I think that's kind of been the story of the season, but generally the Falcons, who are now falling to 4-7, and seven, have never been able to ascend to the level that their leader, Matt Ryan, has played at. One interception and three fumbles in this one meant that Drew Brees didn't have to do much, only throwing for 171 yards on 22 passes with four touchdowns mixed in there as the Saints got up early and they stayed up, riding the running game to the end of the contest. This is it. It's the end of the road for the Falcons as they ultimately squander what was an MVP caliber season again from Matt Ryan, who proved that he could do it away from Kyle Shanahan. That's important to see for Falcons fans, but would have been even more important to see with more wins on the table. It's not to say that anybody on the team is without their faults. Uh, most 4-7 and seven teams don't get there because of just one player, but it'll be interesting to see where they go from there. As far as the Saints go, it was a rivalry game, they came home, they took care of business, and they keep on rolling. Next up, we had the Giants visiting the Philadelphia Eagles, and the Birds defended their turf 22-25. This is a really critical win for the Eagles, considering that a loss here would have, I mean, effectively ended their season. Instead, it's the Giants who, as we discussed earlier, fall a 3-8. and eight. Uh, They're sort of just wallowing in this mess of what are we going to do with Eli. They've got some solid top-end players, certainly on offense, in Barkley and Beckham, but... There's not a lot making up the rest of that team. The Eagles, on the other hand, coming off their Super Bowl victory last year, continue to stay relevant in a division that might just be theirs for the taking if the Cowboys lose a couple of key games. We'll see how the NFC East shakes out. Of course, Philly just won the Super Bowl. So if they can, you know, quote unquote, put it back together, they might just become a team to beat. I don't think they will, though. They just haven't looked like it yet. Anyways, that's that game, and now we'll move on to the Jaguars, who visited the Bills and lost to Josh Allen. Just as we expected, this game was an absolute tire fire, with the winning team's quarterback, Allen, only having to complete eight passes of 19 attempts, 160 yards, to win this football game. 
This was a terrible, terrible game of football. And when I tuned into it, the Bills were closing out the first half, or so it looked, with the ball. They converted a third down on third and short, which, of course, they had an offensive holding penalty that backed him up and made it third and 15, which then Josh Allen took the snap, completed a deep curl left for a first down. So there you go, overcoming it, right? Except there was another offensive holding call that backed it up to third and 25. That was the perfect characterization of this game, as each team kind of struggled to just get out of their own way and do something right. Uh, the Jaguars ultimately made more mistakes. They fall from 3-0 and to 3-8. and This is shocking, uh, if not a little painful to watch, as reality is starting to set in around Jacksonville. I'm very curious to see where this all goes, but hey, at least Jalen Ramsey still has a moderately positive attitude, right? In our next game, we had the Seahawks play the Panthers, and the Seahawks won 30-27 to in what looked like a real barn burner. Russell Wilson played his butt off. Cam Newton was playing great football. Frankly, both of these offenses were going toe-to-toe in a wonderful, wonderful fashion to watch. Russell Wilson reminded us exactly why he's been Super Bowl MVP. I know he gets a whole lot of hate over different corners of the internet for being only all right, but every time I watch this guy play, he makes a great read. He'll willingly pass on open rushing lanes where he could get six or seven yards and instead looks downfield. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. He had plenty of great throws with phenomenal touch. Plus, he of course had faded a few sacks. A perfect play that encapsulates the day, and I frankly think encapsulates the Seahawks season with Wilson and the Panthers season in general, was at the end of the game, there's about one minute left and the Panthers don't have any timeouts. They've just tied it. Now it's 27 to 27. Seahawks have the ball. They snap it, uh, they being the Seahawks. The Panthers end up with a clear shot at Russell Wilson, which he just steps out of the way of, looks downfield, and hits Tyler Lockett for like 45 yards. Uh, That obviously puts the Seahawks directly in field goal position. They run a couple of running plays to just kill the clock. Sebastian Janikowski comes on, the ageless wonder, kicks the winning field goal, and the birds take it home. The Seahawks are going to be a really interesting team to watch. They're in a very tough division right now, so I don't know if they'll be able to squeak out a wild card, but they have totally shocked me. They've become the team that they have been in yesteryear. I thought, honestly, that the wheels were going to fall off this season, that Wilson couldn't hold the team together, and that everything was going to implode, but they've picked up their play of late. That's looking like a much better Bears win than it was. Next up, the Raiders played the Ravens, and the Raiders lost soundly 17-34. My understanding of this game is that it wasn't very close throughout, and Lamar Jackson threw two interceptions to one touchdown, not a ton of yards through the air, a fair amount of yards on the ground, I think about 70, but ultimately... I just want to see a little more passing. And I know I just sound like your basic football person who wants all his quarterbacks to be throwing focused, but after watching RG3 light the league on fire, heck, I'll say this about Mitch Trubisky too, you have to be able to beat people with your arm in the NFL. You have to. As good as your legs might be, they won't be better than an NFL defense is long-term. And I keep seeing Jackson throw fluttery balls that just aren't good enough. I want to see more from him. Obviously, I hope he improves because he's electric with the ball in his hands, but whenever I see a guy who's running more than they're throwing or certainly looking to run first, quote-unquote, I'm going to get dowdy. The Raiders lose another game as the John Gruden era is uh, 
kind of just cat scratching on a chalkboarding its way right on through this year. We'll see if things get any better, but I don't know if they will. The 49ers then took on the Buccaneers in Tampa Bay, and I don't really have a whole lot to say about this one. I expected the 49ers to score more, but by the box score, it looks like Nick Mullins played like a backup, backup quarterback. A touchdown and two interceptions obviously isn't going to help your team win, but he's been doing his best with the hands he's dealt, and frankly, I'm proud of him for that. Jameis Winston commanded the Buccaneers to 27 points, uh, a very solid day through the air as he ultimately protected the football, and when it comes to Jameis Winston, that's really what we're looking for. Touchdowns, interceptions, the big thing we want to see out of him is that he can get those INTs down to zero over the course of a game. So a 38 attempt outing with no picks? Good on you, Jameis. The playoff picture doesn't really include either team, so they're both just looking for things to hope for. Jameis's growth is one of them. Hopefully we see more of it going forward. Next, in one of our big rivalry games, the Browns took on the Bengals. And don't be deceived by the 35-20 to 20 score in favor of the Browns. The Browns blew them out. At one point, this game was an absolutely astonishing 35-7, to 7, and it felt like it too. The Browns just looked like a team that was ready to play, and the Bengals, if we're being honest, looked like the same old Bengals team that we've seen year in and year out. Here they sat at 5-5, five and five, critical game against the Browns to get their season back on track, and here's how it opened up. First drive, Browns score a touchdown. Next Bengals possession, they miss a field goal. Next Browns possession, they score a touchdown. The Bengals punt, the Browns score a touchdown. The Bengals throw a pick, the Browns score a touchdown. The Bengals finally score a touchdown, and then the half ends. Coming out of the half, the Bengals fumble, and the Browns score a touchdown. The Bengals got wasted, and despite what I thought was going to happen, the Browns actually did it through the air. While I was expecting Nick Chubb to come out and dominate on the ground like he had last week, Baker Mayfield actually came out had a great day, four touchdowns through the air, and he deserved every single one of them. Great game for the Browns. We'll see if they can stack it up into respectability. I know the playoffs aren't really their aim this year, but the more that we can see out of Baker Mayfield that proves he was worth a number one pick, the more, obviously, that everybody following Cleveland is just going to build excitement towards the 2019 team. They have real pieces. All they need is a coaching staff and a stable ownership. That's all I think they need. On the other hand, truly nightmarish news for the Bengals that they lose Andy Dalton with a right thumb injury. We don't really know what that is, but he will miss some time, which is obviously not good for a Bengals team that for the first time this season is now below 500. Them and the Raiders, who I forgot to mention that Derek Carr got hurt, because that's not small news, are going to struggle from here. And we'll see. Maybe that maybe this means that they'll get their franchise quarterback thing figured out. I know plenty of Bengals fans have always wanted more than Dalton. Whether or not that's fair, we'll see. They're obviously both going to be forced to try some new guys out. And maybe, similar to San Fran, they'll like a little bit of what they see. At the very least, hopefully it helps fans figure out who they want and who they don't want at their quarterback positions going forward. The Patriots then took care of the Jets in what looks like a big win, comfortable for the Patriots, but ultimately it was a much closer game, 13-13 late in the game. 
that the Pats pulled away from. Todd Bowles, I I mean, I think he's done. I don't think that that's really news. Uh, it's just too many losses for one person to take. The Pats, just like they usually seem to do, came in against a divisional opponent that they expected to beat and came away from the game healthy without exerting too much effort. It seems like Belichick will find these various vendetta games where he's going to go flex his Patriot muscle and score a bunch of points, but against teams like the Jets, he usually just sort of lets them be. So the Patriots ultimately take care of business, and we will move on with that to the Cardinals playing the Chargers. And while there's a huge margin of victory in this one, 10 to 45, the loss might outweigh the positive as Melvin Gordon looks to have a right knee injury, and that is never good for a running back. Never. Frankly, never good for a football player. Most recently, Bears fans will remember that uh, Cameron Meredith tore his ACL, and he was absolutely never the same. The Chargers, while stacked, aren't near the same team that they are without Gordon as they are with him, and he's been a yard churner over the last year. The Bolts are going to need him when it comes playoff time, so whether or not they're going to use him for next week's game against the Steelers, we'll see, but... Hopefully he'll be back come the dance. And then let's not forget about the Steelers, who customarily, as they seem to do once a year, forgot how to play football against the Denver Broncos. They just didn't show up focused. They made mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. One play that I think exemplifies what this loss looked like, and you can go back and watch it because it's hilarious, is where a Steeler wide receiver, wide open for like a massive touchdown gain, has this like dolphin jump thing where he jumps way too early for a ball that he could have caught in stride ends up just sort of hanging in the air as he doesn't even manage to come down with the catch the Steelers made too many mistakes been through two interceptions and neither of them were good and James Conner had a pretty bad fumble as the Broncos did exactly what you expect a team like them to do they played tight, they didn't commit any turnovers, and they played sound defense to get a win at home. That's how you're supposed to do it against some of the NFL's best. And I gotta say, this puts a real dent in my image of the Steelers. And then, hoo-wee, this Colts-Dolphins game was ridiculous. And in classic Colts, Andrew Luck, magic fashion, we had the Colts come back from a 10-point deficit to beat the Dolphins 24-27 to in Indy. Andrew Luck is putting on a masterclass of how to play quarterback right now, and it's just fun to watch. It's fun to be a part of. It's fun to see that there are these teams out there like Houston, and we'll get to them, and Indy that are just winning games and winning games and winning games and winning games. They're, the Colts can't be stopped right now. They look like one of the best teams in the NFL, and as expected, the Dolphins looked a lot better with Tannehill back. I don't know if he's the solution, so to speak, because everybody wants to talk about the solution and the guy, but he is a good quarterback. He made this game a lot better, and it took some real <clears throat> luck to win this game. The Vikings then did us all a favor and, I believe, put a bow on the Packers' season. Rodgers just hasn't been playing well enough. It's not his fault, per se, but he's certainly not helping. He's eating a lot of sacks due to balls that he's hanging on to, looking for home run plays that aren't there. Aaron Rodgers is better than that, and Aaron Rodgers' team needs him 
to be better than that. This is a team made up of Rodgers, Devontae Adams, Aaron Jones, and some guys. And until they prove that they're better than just guys, they're going to remain just guys. And the Vikings rolled them over. A good performance by Kirk Cousins. He came out angry just like we expected him to. And they take care of business at home, 17-24. to We'll see what this means for the Vikings' playoff hopes as every single win matters, but I'm mostly just concerned with how they're going to play against better teams than teams like the Packers. They really struggled against the Bears. I can't wait to find out how they'll do against other non-Bears good teams. And then finally, we had the Titans play the Texans. The Texans annihilated them. They're now sitting at 8-3. and three. This game just wrapped up. I know nothing about it, but from what I understand, Marcus Mariota didn't play well enough. Deshaun Watson played great. Texans win a big one, 17-34. The very little of this game I saw, Mariota just didn't bring it to the table, so to speak. Uh, there was a play I saw that I think has been pretty indicative of his career so far where he took the snap, he looked to his left, he looked to his right, he threw a very sad pump fake and then tried to roll out of the way of a sack that just annihilated him. He went right down. I don't think he is the guy. I don't think he'll be ready in this league. If he does, it won't be with the Titans because it'll be way too long. I don't know what that means for them, but ultimately, this ain't their year. Holy moly, those Texans, though. Now, I'm looking at the clock, and I'm seeing that we're coming up on our 41st minute, which makes this the longest show already in Bear With Me history. So if you'll bear with me for a second, I'm going to just blow through this next section. We'll see if we can get it done in under six minutes. If you're a gambler and want to know my thoughts on any of these games that I do or don't touch on, feel free to hit me with a direct message, and I'm happy to explain my thought process. But just like last time, I'm going to name the game. I may Maybe I'll say a blurb, but I'll give you who I think is going to win, how much I think they're going to win by. We'll start with Saints at Cowboys. I think there's no way the Cowboys get out of this with a win. I think the Saints beat them by 10 as the hashtag Fire Garrett train pulls right on out of the station. An interesting tidbit about this game, each team has actually had a full week's rest. It's weird, but because they both played on Thanksgiving, this is actually similar to a Sunday game, even though it's on Thursday. Next, we have the Bears at the Giants, and like I said earlier, I think the Bears win this one by seven. Moving on, we've got the Cardinals facing the Packers, and come on, the Packers have to win this game at least, right? I think the Packers win this one by ten. The Colts then face the Jaguars, and I think the Colts roll them over. We've got a really, really sad Jaguars team, and while they may come to play, and it may stay a little bit close, I think the Colts are going to win it by, let's go with five. Weird score, I know, but I don't think they'll get the whole seven. Next up, we have the Browns facing the Texans. And while this will be a tight game and the Browns will certainly be ready to prove something, I think the Texans are going to win this one. It's hard to bet against the favorite here. They're, they're better. But I don't think the Texans are going to win it by very much. Uh, I'll give them one point, which is the lowest margin I've predicted so far. But an upset just wouldn't really surprise me. Then we've got the Panthers taking on the Buccaneers. And I just don't see any way that the Buccaneers defense can possibly get ready for this. The Panthers, unlike way too many defensive coaches that we've seen, have a very creative offense, predominantly on RPOs and read option runs with Cam Newton. I don't think the Buccaneers have the personnel to deny any of this stuff, and I think they give up big ones. Not to mention, I totally expect Jameis Winston to struggle under that pressure of losing the game, slowly slipping away. What's he going to do? Throw picks. Panthers by 10, maybe more. 
Next up, the Bills take on the Dolphins, and I really want to pick the Bills here, but I can't because the Dolphins are ultimately going to win this game. See, I want to see this game as the passing of the torch where Ryan Tannehill is going to give Josh Allen his title of quote-unquote quarterback who is to be blamed for the entire team's failure even though it's not necessarily all their fault uh while i think that Tannehill currently occupies that position formerly occupied by cutler the dolphins are going to win this one by seven the broncos then take on the bengals in cincinnati and i don't think this one's hard to call either i think the broncos keep rolling as they pound a sliding bengals team that's going to fall to five and seven broncos in yeah i'll risk it a 10 point victory why not they'll win big then we've got the Ravens visiting the Falcons, and I think the Falcons bow up and beat the Ravens here. The Falcons are just too talented on offense not to beat the occasional team here and there. And while the Lamar Jackson thing is working out now, I think the book on him is going to start to get out slowly. I think this one plays out like that common game we always tend to see with rookies, where around the third or fourth NFL game, they end up responsible for three or four turnovers by themselves and end up effectively losing the game for them. I'm going to take the Falcons, but I only take them by three. The Rams then visit the Lions in Detroit, and while I want to pick the Lions because that helped the Bears, I have to take the Rams, I have to take them by 10, maybe 14. I think this is going to be a hang-your-header for the Matt Patricia-led Lions uh, as they fall to 4-8 and eight and things get bad. Next up, we've got the Chiefs at the Raiders, and my gut tells me that I should go with 10 points, so I'm going to go with 10 points. I understand that with Carr's injury, they could win by more, especially with this Gruden team just really, really struggling, but the Raiders are at home. I'll take the Chiefs. How about 10? The Jets, still without Sam Darnold, then take on the Titans, and I don't think there's any way the Titans don't win this. I'll give them 7 points, Titans by 7. Then we've got the Vikings visiting the Patriots in Foxborough. I think the Patriots win this one. They love showing up for big games. And while I expect the Vikings to fight with all they have, I think they're going to get suffocated by Brady's Patriots as they lose by a shocking 10-point margin that's going to make the whole rest of the league go, oh shoot, the Patriots are still the Patriots. Next up, the 49ers visit the Seahawks. The Seahawks are going to win by 10. Move on there. The Chargers then travel to Pittsburgh for the Sunday night tilt, and I think the loss of Melvin Gordon proves a little bit too much as an energized Steelers team, embarrassed after that loss this last week to the Broncos, comes out and slugs the Chargers in a blow-for-blow -blow game where we see the Steelers rise up by two or three points. I'm thinking late field goal, whether it's from tied to win or from just barely losing to win. Steelers by two. And in our final prediction, I think the Eagles quote-unquote right the ship against the Redskins on Monday night where Colt McCoy once again proves unable to lift the Redskins past their Theismanesque injury. And the Eagles win this game. Let's go by seven points. The really interesting thing, if everything works out like I've predicted it, we're going to have the NFC East in a deadlock three-way tie for first all at 6-6. Six and six. Uh, The Cowboys and the Redskins will lose, the Eagles will rise, and suddenly our Super Bowl champions may very well have their road back to the playoffs. Anyways, thank you so much for being patient with me. Hopefully we got through those predictions quickly and efficiently enough for everybody. If you like the longer formats, if you want me to go even longer and further in-depth into things, please let me know. Hit me up. Once again, my Twitter handle is at R-S-C-H-M-I-T-Z-2-8, Rschmitz28. Please let me know with direct messages or anything. Even tweet at me. I don't really care uh, what you think of the show, what's going well, what's going poorly. Any feedback, all feedback, very appreciated on this gridiron podcasting journey that I'm on. Anyways, 
I will see y'all next Tuesday, and thank you so much for bearing with me.